You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, it's Jim with a heads up that for the next few months, we're going to be conducting a listener survey to help us get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the program. Please support the podcast by taking our short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. And I'll repeat that in a moment. It'll only take you a few minutes and your feedback will help us improve Pulse of the Planet and find new sponsors who may actually interest you. There's even a place at the end to tell me anything you want. Well, almost anything. And as a way of saying thank you, you'll be entered into a raffle to win a $500 Amazon gift card. So again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, or click on the link in our program notes. Thank you. We've got a great program in store for you, a St. Patrick's Day special with some fabulous music and a world-class storyteller. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet. Some years ago, My wife Eileen and I had the pleasure of traveling for a few weeks in Ireland. With an introduction from a friend, we ended up spending an afternoon with Eddie Lenahan, a storyteller of some renown. Born in County Kerry, he developed a lifelong passion for finding and preserving the oral traditions of Ireland, in particular the stories of the fairy folk, which Eddie calls the other crowd. They're not my stories, they're the stories of these old people that I have I've recorded down the years. I tell you, some of those people would put your hair standing up if you had any hair. The afternoon and, uh, starts you know, pleasantly enough, sitting around a kitchen table sipping tea. Eddie looks a bit like a wizened wise man with glasses, wild red hair and a bushy graying beard. He speaks of his father, who had been a harness maker and knew virtually everyone in the area where Eddie grew up, including the old-timers who had stories to tell. And as he begins to recount a story or two, Eddie becomes energized, earnest, completely engaged, and we find ourselves drawn into and entangled in the prospect that these are not just stories, but actual events that his informants had recounted. Uh, another man that my father recommended me to uh, was a wonderful man to tell fairy stories, and his house was built on a fairy path. And he was living there alone with his dog in the middle of a lonesome old place. There was no house within a quarter of a mile of him, boggy place. But he couldn't keep his doors locked at night. You wake up in the morning and both those doors would be open. And he wasn't joking because, you know, he had to live with this. 
and he took it for granted eventually you know the house was built by his grandfather on a ferry path against advice from an old travelling man who had come the way and said uh uh-uh, uh you're not building there are you I am why he said well if you build there you won't have much peace in this house and of course the grandfather laughed in that nonsense rubbish what are you talking about this is my place I'm going to build where I like and he did but if he did uh, there was no peace in that house Every night without fail there'd be noises, 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 furniture moving around that come down. Nothing, nothing moved whatsoever. He said you could bar the door, you could chain the doors, lock them. They'd be both open in the morning. You wouldn't laugh if you were talking to that man because, like I say, he was living with them. And I'm plagued by, you know, people who come to laugh. Ha ha, you know, another petty leprechaun story. You wouldn't have minded that from American people who, you know, who were a long way away from here and they were still nostalgic, especially Irish Americans, nostalgic for home. And as you said, Patrick's Day became a cliche. Oh, we have an Irish story for Patrick's Day, a fairy story. But of course, they were thinking in terms of the tooth fairy and the Walt Disney little fairies with the nice sparkly wings and the wand and all. The Irish fairies are nothing like that. What makes the Irish fairies frightening is you could be one of them. I could be one of them. You could be sitting right next to one and they'd look exactly like any other human being. That could be one of them. And, I mean, that's frightening. It was at this point that my wife and I look at each other, each thinking the same thing. It's not hard to imagine Eddie, who looks like a character from Lord of the Rings, as an emissary from the other crowd. We nod to each other and smile somewhat disingenuously at Eddie, Eileen takes a sip of tea, and I adjust my position in the kitchen chair, and Eddie settles into a story. They dance, they play music, they, they, do, they play hurling and football, but the difficulty is they always need a human being to do their business properly. Now, if you were to ask me why is that so, I couldn't explain that. That is the story that I've had constantly, constantly from old people. Can you give an example of what you mean by that? Oh, I, I can indeed, because, for example, I know a man who's still alive down in County Limerick, and he told me a most interesting story about the night that he was coming home from card playing. And he was a good card player, still is, still is. He's 81 or 2 now. But uh, he had a bike when most people were walking. And on his way from the house where the cards were being played, he used to have to, to pass this hill <laughs> in County Limerick the hills aren't very big but the old bike he had was it was one of the old heavy heavy black bikes that last for years and years but by the lord if you came to a hill you wouldn't cycle one of them up a hill and when he'd be coming home from the car player on his bike he always came the same way home and at this little hill it wasn't very high, maybe 50 feet, but he couldn't cycle up it. He used to always have to dismount and walk the bike up the hill. He took me to the place, showed me the place, and there at the top of the hill, there's a gap. There's a gate in it now, but at that time he said there wasn't. There was just a bush stuck in the gap, but just beyond the bush on the right-hand side, there's a fairy fort, big circle, and the outer wall of the fort comes right out. It's the ditch of the road itself. And inside there's a sloping down field. But this night anyway, he was climbing up the hill with his bike, pushing the bike beside him, when just at the gap, something stepped out in front of him. Now, of course, he thought, because it was a fairly bright night, he thought, geez, is the fox or a badger or something? And he looked down over the handlebars of the bike, and there looking up at him was a smallish man. He wasn't tiny. He said he was about as big as a seven-year-old child. And of course, Tom was completely taken aback. What the hell was this? And the small man says to him, 
any chance he said you'd referee our match? Our ref never showed up. And there was Tom sat wondering still, am I, am I seeing things, am I hearing things? Uh, and, of course, it came into his mind immediately, oh, where he was near the fort, and he had often heard about, if they ask you to do something, you better consider it well. Uh, and he said, what match? And the little man pointed into the field, in the gap, and there inside in the field, under the moonlight, Tom saw the two groups of men, all tugged out in their colours, with their hurlies in their hands, one side and the other, obviously two teams waiting to play, but no referee. And the little man says to him, well, will you, or won't you? Oh, oh I, I'd be delighted, says Tom, but uh, I, I have no whistle or nothing, I mean... Come on, come on, we'll see to that, said the little man. So he threw his bike into the bushes at the side of the road, walked in, and, like he said to me himself, it was awkward, because nobody spoke to him, only all watching him. And like he said, you know, when you walk into a room where everybody seems to know you, and you know nobody, and nobody speaks, you know, you feel kind of uneasy. But while he was there wondering, what next? One of them, obviously one of the captains, stepped forward, threw him the schlitter, the ball, you know, and he caught it, and it was real. This was no illusion, there it was. And the captain said to him, uh, the man he took to be one of the captains at least, he says, will you ref our match? Uh, he says, well, I, 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 I'll do my best, he said, but I have no whistle. He said, can't you use your fingers? And he could, of course. But in any case, he was summing this up, uh, Tom, he's an alert man. He was summing this up, and you know, he was looking at their size. They were a bit small. And he said, how long will I play per half? Now, the half at that time would have been about 30 minutes per half. But he says, is that too small? He said, I'd play a short half, you know. And, yeah, I'd play 20 minutes. It'd be enough for them. And so, right, he says, we'll start. So they, they took their positions, and he threw in the ball, and... He says, by Christ, he says, if I thought that this was going to be some kind of dainty game, he says, I couldn't have been more wrong because they attacked each other. That'd be the only word for it, he says. They attacked each other. He said, attacking the legs out from under each other with all these. He said, if you got in there, way, if you held onto that ball for two seconds longer than you should, there'd be five or six of them down on top of you. They'd stamp you into the ground. They'd wilt you with all these. It was savage, It was like a fight, like a battle. And the worst of it all, he said, they were taking no notice of me. He whistled him up for a foul. There was no notice. And all he was thinking of, how the Christ am I going to get out of this? And as the game went on, he noticed that they were equally matched, just point for point, goal for goal, one answered the other. And, of course, now it was beginning, when half-time came, about 20 minutes, you know, it was beginning to dawn him. Jesus, I, look, how am I going to get out of here? If this is a draw, what do I do? Play extra time or come back? Or He didn't want to come back. He, if he was going to get out of here, he was going to be very, very lucky, he thought. But anyway, he blew up for half-time, and in that time, five, six minutes while they went to this side and went to that side, their own corners of the field, as he said, snarling at each other, holding up their hoodlies. And I said, Jesus, what am I going to do? And he was trying to figure out, uh, what, what, how am I going to get out of this? But in any case, blew up for the second half, and it was in the second half he noticed that one of the teams was mm, stronger than the other, and they began to pull ahead a point, two points, three points, and of course three points is equal to a goal in Gaelic games. And he was, Tom was quick enough to spot, oh my God, if they get another point, I'm in real trouble. Because at least when the team is three points up, if you get a goal, you equalise. But if a team goes four points up, the other crowd have to score twice, if not four times to equalise. So, so he said, this is getting out of hand. Uh, because he knew, you see, that if one of these teams lost, what were the losers going to do to him? 
if they were doing this to each other, welting each other mercilessly. So he had to make this game a draw. Now he saw that much at least. So we got anywhere. Um, these crowds were three points up and to shoving on, shoving on, shoving on towards the end of the game. And finally, desperation. He blew up for a foul, 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 penalty. penalty. And it wasn't a penalty at all, but he had to make it a penalty now, so hoping that they'd score and equalise. So, uh, of course, they gathered around. Shut up, shut up, he says. I'm the ref here. And for the first time, they calmed down. Then you think, God almighty, why didn't I talk up for myself before now and assert my authority? But there was quietness, and he says, take the penalty. And he was hoping now that the man would score a goal or else he was in trouble. And your man lined up anywhere, picked up the ball, and in it went, and goal. And the big cheer, of course. And even though he said there was four or five minutes still left, a couple of minutes after that, he blew up time, finished the game before that score again, now that they were equal. And, of course, they gathered around him. What in the name of God is wrong with you? You didn't time enough. There's time left yet. He said, look, I'm the ref here. If you want somebody else to ref your game, why don't you get somebody else? And they uh, muttering and growling and snarling. But then the fellow who had thrown him the ball, one of the captains, when he came into the field, stepped forward, waved his hand, quietened the crowd. And then he said to Tom, a great night's work, he said. That was the best game we had in the last 300 years, he says, and we're coming here a lot longer than that, but he said a draw is no good to us. Is there any chance, he says, that you'll referee our replay, or rematch, next Friday night? And Tom, of course, was so delighted to, to get out of there, you know, that, 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 that he'd promise anything. But when he looked around, he noticed that they had got around him, behind him, between him and the gate. He was encircled. And I wonder, what now? He said, jeez, what are they going to do? But the, the same small fellow, the captain, obviously, just waved his hand now that he had got the promise that Tom would come back next Friday night and referee the match, the replay. And he said, there and then, they formed two lines, like, like uh, what would I say, a guard of honour on each side, and a gap out to the road. Now, he said to me, you know, every step he took, you know, and he <laughs> nodding as he passed, he was expecting a bit of a hardly down the back of the head. But he didn't. He said they let him go. And when he finally got out on the public road, he looked back, naturally enough, there was nothing. Nobody there. But he said to me that he picked up his bike out of the bushes and by God, he got on it and he said he nearly broke the chain going down the other side. He was home in five, five, ten minutes. And of course, when he arrived home, his wife was waiting up for him and she saw the state of him and she said, what in the name of God is wrong with you? And he told her. And do you think she, she believed him? Not at all. She said, yes, where were you drinking? And, you know, he's, <gasps> you know, he says, there is smell a drink off me. And of course, there wasn't. All he was drinking all night was tea in the house where he had been playing the cards. But uh, practical man that he was, he said, he went back the following morning because by the time he woke up in the morning, he didn't believe it himself. He thought, just was I dreaming? But he went back to the field and sure enough, there inside, he saw the small footprints and the bigger ones, his own, obviously, in the muck. And there at one side, he saw the two holes where the goalpost had been. There was no goalpost there now. And he found the two holes at the other side of the field where the other goalpost had been. So he knew then that it wasn't a dream, whatever else. And just then he began to think of his promise, that he'd go back next Friday night, and he didn't want to, because how did he know that he might not come out of there? And uh, even his wife, who hadn't believed him that night when he arrived home, noticed in the days that followed, as day followed, day followed, day, you know, that how, how down on himself he had become going around talking to himself, muttering to himself, and not looking well. And she asked him, of course, what in the name of heavens is wrong, is wrong with you? 
And he said, didn't I tell you? And you wouldn't believe me. And then she began to believe him when she saw the state of him. And she said to him this particular night, a couple of, it was maybe Wednesday night now, and he had only two nights to go until Friday night. So she said, go to the priest. He might have some advice for you. So he did. No, against his will, because, you know, how did he know But the priest might accuse him of being out drinking or you know, whatever it might be, night walking, when you should be at home inside in your own bed. But he did anyway, because he was frightened, he told me. And the priest, funny enough, he went to the old priest, the parish priest. The priest listened, and the priest didn't laugh at him. And he said, Tom, he said, you have yourself got into serious trouble here. Now, he said... You, I, I won't advise you not to go back. You gave your word, after all. I can't advise you to do that, he said. But if you go back there and the wrong result, if you're telling me the truth, he says, Tom had told him the story, and if there's that wrong result, you might not come out of there alive. So he said, look, all I can do for you is... And he put his hand into the press beside him and he took out a little bottle, obviously holy water. He blessed it again anyway. He said, look, if you're going, and I don't know whether you are or not, take that with you. It might be of some help to you. And Tom told me he didn't go back. He was afraid of, well, that he mightn't come out of there. He didn't go back. But he still loved playing cards. And he still had his bike. So he said that ever afterwards he never passed that place at night again. And even today, wouldn't. He has a car today. He would not pass that place. He used to go on his bike four or five miles around by all the other little byways to get home from the house that he was playing the cards in, whereas this road was the direct one, where the hill was. But he never passed it again at night. And when he took me to see the very place, uh, and it was as he described it in his story, the landscape was exactly as he had described it. That was in daylight. He wouldn't go back there at night. So, you know, they're the kind of people I want to meet, people who have been there themselves. Now, I can't prove that the story is true, except to watch his face as he tells it. And what he's telling me is not a lie, at least. He may be wrong, he may be elaborating, but he saw something. And the way he described it to me was very, very precise. As I strayed alone At the close of the day about the beginning of June in the glade. Our thanks to Eddie Lenhan. Eddie has compiled many books of stories about the other crowd. You can find them on his website, eddielenahan.webley.com. The tin whistle music and the song were performed by the late Packy Manus Byrne, a friend and a fine storyteller in his own right. The music we'll close with was recorded in the town of Ardra in County Donegal at the Corner House, one of Ireland's many great pubs, where every night music and stories live. And with wishes for a fine St. Patrick's Day to you, I'm Jim Metzner.
Once again, please support our podcast by taking a short listener questionnaire at surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. That's A-I-R-W-A-V-E. Or click on the link in our episode notes. Thank you.